0: Hey, Amber, remember how you and I are archaeologists? I do! I do remember that, yeah. Okay, well, I want to tell you about a really good thing for archaeologists to do, which is to become a member of the archaeology division of the American Anthropological Association.
1: But why would I? an archaeologist want to do that
0: well, for lots of reasons for one as soon as you join boom you're connected to a huge network of scholars who all want to make contributions to archaeology and anthropology plus it shows that you're really committed to four-field anthropology and that looks really good on a cv
1: what about information can
0: yep. i access it you sure can you get access to the AnthroSource portal which is a hub for tons of anthropology and archaeology journals Okay,
1: so what you're saying is, whether you're a new archaeology or anthropology student, or you're an established scholar, or anywhere in between, you can dig deeper into the field by joining the archaeology division of the American Anthropological Association. So, I guess I'm going to go to ad.americananthro.org to learn more about
0: this. Yep, that's ad.americananthro.org. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And congratulations. You lucky ducks get to hear about
1: ancient Mesopotamia this week.
0: Well, we were going to get here sooner or later.
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing! (laughs) A peek behind the
0: curtain. The script says
1: appropriate response <laughs>
0: i guess i guess that was what was deemed an appropriate <laughs> response uh, before we get to that good stuff though we've got a quick patreon shout out so patreon <laughs> we've got a quick patreon shout out Thank i don't know you. how to say it i hear patreon. people say patreon no
1: i think it should be patreon like with a uh, omega we've it's got a
0: patreon a shout out to the patreon um God, Marshall. Uh, Marshall. Marshall. <laughs> thank you. To Kara for your generous support of the show. And remember, if you like the dirt, you can support us in a lot of ways. You can go to patreon.com/slash the dirt podcast and throw us a couple of bucks a month. You can sponsor your very own episode. You can leave a review of the show on the Apple Podcast app. You could tell every person you meet about us. Do you have social anxiety? We are a great icebreaker. Whatever you do, thank you so much to all of you who support the show and all of you who listen. Yes, thank you.
1: Now that we have our thank yous aside, <laughs> let's get into it. This week, our story begins in the third millennium BCE. We are currently in the third millennium CE. So wind it back years. to about the 26th century BCE. Okay. So if Wait. you've never, what? <laughs> okay, I got it. The I'm 26th there. century mm-hmm.
0: in, the in the third millennium, millennium. Mm-hmm. BCE. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So if you've never been to Mesopotamia in the third millennium BCE, don't worry, because I am a pretty good tour guide, if I do say so myself. uh,
0: I love when when we do episodes where you know lots of things, because I always learn a lot, but I'm especially excited for this one, because I get to relearn things that I learned literally while sitting next to you in class. (laughs) Did you see that that I shared? Fallen out of my head. That I shared the syllabus. I did from two thousand five. I sure, I sure did see it, but I did not look at it. <laughs> okay, oh. okay. So take me to third millennium BCE Mesopotamia. Yes,
1: if you were in the city state of Ur five thousand and some years ago, you would not self-identify as Mesopotamian.
0: You don't so, know my life.
1: Wait, no, I. Well, I know this much about it, uh, if when they send out the census, you would not tick that box because that box okay. wouldn't exist. Um, so the name Mesopotamia comes from Greek, um, and the two parts of it are meso, meaning middle or between, and potamos, meaning river. Meaning so not, it's not sitting in the middle of a river. <laughs> no. So <laughs> it means the place between the rivers, and specifically two rivers. Those rivers being the Euphrates to the southwest and the Tigris to the northeast. Which, if you saw this draft of the script an hour ago, I had that wrong. I didn't catch I, it because I got cocky, and then I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I know." And then I looked, and I was like, "Nope, you do not know." <laughs> um, hey, we we do our research. We just well, I have known and now know again. Um, so the term Mesopotamia. Uh, you know, with the Greek, they didn't speak Greek there. What's up with that? Um, it appears in the Septuagint. Sounds right to me. Okay, the Septuagint, being which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and so it's a literal translation of the word Naharaim, hmm. which means lands of rivers. Okay, so it's sort of like the rivery place. Yep. And then, so so that's that's why it's there. So it seems to have originally meant the land east of the Euphrates in eastern Syria, so like greater Syria, like Mm old-timey Syria. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, But today, Mesopotamia refers to eastern Syria, northern Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and all but the most deserty parts of Iraq, southeastern Turkey, and Iran west of the Zagros, which isn't much of Iran, but it's still a little bit of Iran. Um, that's yeah. in Mesopotamia. Um, so Mesopotamia stops being Mesopotamia around the arrival and spread of Islam and extends back to the earliest signs of social complexity, depending on who you ask. Today, you're asking us. And so specific- we are specifically, <laughs> specifically talking you're about asking Amber, <laughs> you're asking Amber. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about the third millennium BCE and I'm specifically talking about the space between the Tigris and Euphrates, where they're quite close together, um, very near to where they dump into the Gulf. Um, and that's east of what is today the city of Basra in Iraq. Okay. So it's there in the in like the delta region. So in this period, uh, known as the early dynastic period, this corner of Western Asia features many independent, interconnected and sometimes warring city states. Um and so a city state is sort of a, a central urban core that has like a, a a temple palace complex. And then there's the hinterland around it, which is usually where there's some kind of agriculture happening to support it. So that's what a city state is. Um so it's not like the vatican city like not city state (laughs) in that sense okay Um, so at this so by the early dynastic period writings really come into its own by now and there's an extensive bureaucracy emerging so they they can really get into those lists oh god they love lists. lists they love a good receipt also oh um and so each of these city states would have a patron deity um and so like marduk is the patron deity of Babylon. Like, and okay. so like, just like, that's something that like comes up over and over and over, over the next 3000 years from this two and a half thousand years from this point. Okay. So, you know, you've got, so each of these city States have a patron deity and a, and a very large temple dedicated to worship of that deity deity. So it's like the sort of heart of worship for them. Um, and so both, the temple itself and the population of the city and the hinterland around it would be ruled by either an NC who is a priestly governor um, or a Lugal which is Sumerian for big man big King. man big man um, in either case they were both a political and a religious leader and I'm not gonna get into that um, so At any point during this period, any one of the more than a dozen Sumerian city states would be more powerful than the others, and supremacy passed around from one city to another periodically. Um, And so, these shifts and the the kings among whom it shifted are recorded in a text known as the Sumerian King List, which exists in a couple different versions. Um, And so, the reason why it's in a couple different versions from a couple different places because is because texts like this would be written by written in cuneiform on tablets and so that's done by pressing the tip of a stylus and so it's made of a reed so it's sort of like mm-hmm. thicker on one side than the other makes a uh, wedge and so you yeah and so cuneiform means wedge shape so that's what that is um and so you press the end of the the stylus into the soft clay to create patterns of short lines and those patterns of short lines become uh the the signs um and so that's how you write, and it's a very specific skill, both reading and copying, and because it's very tedious, and because there are lots of little little lines that go into right. it, and so um, this these could be copied. Dupl- these could be duplicated um, because it's being replicated for tr- use in another person's library, mm. or. It's used for homework. So you see things that have errors and things because um these are this I love homework stuff like for that. scribal students. And so that's why you have a lot of, of these lists and dictionaries and things. Because for most of the time, Sumerian language is used. Um, nobody understands Sumerian. But this would also, because it's a list. That's fun. And um, so that's the people love love copying them because they're there's repetition mm-hmm. so it's it's easier mm-hmm. and it's easier to translate if you're learning it in the third millennium c e <laughs> um, and so these lists include all the kings of these city states, including real people and their reigns and the length lengths of their reigns, mm-hmm. back to the antediluvian kings, who are the kings that ruled before the great flood, the the Noah one. I've heard of it, um, and they had reigns of like twenty thousand years. So, so it's Less really interesting, real, no, but, no cool. but it's very interesting that there are that that you have this tradition, mm-hmm. and so you have a tradition that. Um, encompasses both the present and the mythic past no that's Um, super cool and then just and then you know and so the period what we'll be talking about in a few minutes is roughly contemporaneous when sumerian writing would like to say that gilgamesh was running his city-state okay so so the lines are very blurred there um and so some of these cities you might have heard of Uh, the average person may have heard of um so there's Uruk which is even more ancient city and that's the one that Gilgamesh was was king of um you know the guy with the epic Mm -hmm. um and Uruk you may have also heard of because it is Iraq got it it's the same word yeah yep same word very cool um Babylon really pops off later on Yeah, I've heard of that too. Um, (laughs) A lot of people hear that. (laughs) Sumer itself was a city-state. Remember from my previous finger-wagging, Sumeria, not a thing.
0: Um, Sumerian is a language. Remember also from my excellent pun about five minutes ago. Yeah, Sumer is a thing. Um, So (laughs) Sumerian is the
1: language, and Schumer... Is an Akkadian word. It's not even Sumerian. Whoa! So it's not. Yeah. Right. So Sumerians referred to themselves as the black-headed people, like which they had dark hair, or like I would assume very so. clogged
0: pores.
1: No. Yeah. I would assume. I yeah. Um, and um, which like okay fine. Sure. Um, and then the term that they, the phrase that they used to describe where they were from is the land of noble kings okay which humble brag mm-hmm. um and so also there's akkad which became the heart of what is arguably the world's first empire um the akkadian empire and mm-hmm. eh, um headed up by our boy sargon mm-hmm. um and so the akkadian empire begins and the early dynastic period ends so that's what ends the early dynastic period. Because okay. you have these dynasties, and then you've got an empire, and then it kind of falls apart, and then you got some more dynasties. Okay. Um, and uh, we don't know where Akkad is. Not yet. Don't know where it is. And then there's or
0: what? or what?
1: Um, or of the Chaldees. Okay. That's um uh, so that's where the biblical Abraham is from. Yeah. Chaldean. So that's the same thing, right? He was a Chaldean. Yeah. He was a Chaldean and the Chaldeans are in Southern Iraq. Right. And they are from Ur. Well, they're also still from Southern Iraq. Yes. Yes. I know. But
0: we're talking about but, the city of Ur.
1: Yeah. And if you've never heard of it, strap in because Anna, you're going to take us to our next section, <laughs> which I'm calling find Ur's, keep Ur's. <laughs> so
0: good. I know, right? <laughs> I kept that one to
1: myself all week. <laughs> oh, I'm so proud of
0: you. Okay. Thank you. Fast forward to the end of the second millennium CE. To be exact, we are in 1922. Arguably the golden age of archaeology. I mean, the golden age of shiny archaeology. Not necessarily the golden age of archaeology being done methodologically.
1: Well, Soundly. is the
0: golden age ever used to refer to things being
1: done like absolutely
0: or... All right. or- That is a very fair point. Okay, so this was the golden age of archaeology when British people previously familiar with this corner of the world through military service during World War I returned to slake their curiosity as the relationship between Britain and what was then becoming Iraq was in flux. So we are talking about the magnificently named Sir Leonard Woolley. And Woolley is considered to be one of the first modern archaeologists, since he, he did methodically excavate, he recorded extensive notes, and he used those two things to try and recreate what ancient life was like. If you're an Agatha Christie fan, you may also be familiar with Sir Leonard, um, because Agatha Christie was present at the excavations at Ur, which then served as the inspiration for her book, Murder in Mesopotamia, in which a character based on a lady everyone thought was awful gets murdered in Mesopotamia. The excavations at Ur were a joint project between the University of Pennsylvania, with whom Woolley had collaborated previously, and the British Museum. There were uh, three phases of excavation. Woolley started the excavations at Ur in early November 1922. After digging two initial trial trenches, Woolley spent his first five digging seasons focusing on the high mound with its ziggurat, which is a, a stepped pyramid, and public buildings within... Oh uh, no! Is it? I'm. I know I'm pronouncing it wrong when I say Nebuchadnezzar. How do I say it right again? I know it's or Nebuchadnezzar. Okay.
1: Um. I think it's. Isn't it Nabu? Nabu Kudur Utsur. Yes.
0: Okay. I just wanted you to have that moment. Okay. But <laughs> I I'm, got it. I. I. am gonna say Nebuchadnezzar. Um. That's fine. Yeah. So public buildings within uh, Nebuchadnezzar's temenos, which is the enclosure wall. In the second half of the 1920s, Woolley shifted. Yeah, his- so that's
1: like I'm sorry, that's way way later. So Nebuchadnezzar is um, mid first millennium BCE. Right. Yes. Way so later. this is this is
0: later because this is a tell site. So there are layers of occupation, right? So a tell. So we're is, going back in time. A is essentially a mound where um, different groups of people have lived for thousands and thousands of years and, and built up over and over and over each other. Um, so it's a it's a big old layer cake of archaeology, and that's that's what it is. So in the second half of the 1920s, Woolley shifted his primary focus to the cemetery. In less than three months, in 1927 as you would expect in a cemetery maybe, he uncovered some 600 burials, including one rich tomb, which is referred to as PG-580, that contained many gold implements. In the next two seasons, he uncovered hundreds of additional burials, 454 in the 1928-29 season, and 350 in 1929 through 1930. Um, And this includes something that we're going to touch on quite a bit today, the Great Death Pit. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> In the last few seasons, Wooly focused on investigating the prehistory of ore with the silt flood layer. Um, is it the flood? The, the flood? Yeah, he thought he found the flood. Yeah, okay. But he found a flood?
1: Re- remember, remember, like, the antediluvian kings. No, I know, I do, I do. So there there were the, there fi- for that. yeah, so, right. And so this is, he's like, found it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, That's, <laughs> I did it. We should stop now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And indeed he did because his last season ended in February
1: 1934. Yeah. And so um, Wooley's focus was largely on those good, good burials and the mm. good, good goodies mm-hmm. they got in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because he didn't necessarily focus on much else, we shall also focus on the burials, <laughs> yes, um, and sort of both what was in them and then what has come of what is in them. Oh. So I'm going
0: to read a little bit of <laughs> that giant book in front of you,
1: the Cultural Atlas of Mesopotamia and the Ancient Near East, um, which was is by Michael Rofe and was. One of the
0: textbooks for my baby archaeology class. Is that like a Luristan bronze thing on the No, that's a thing from or Oh. That makes sense. It's <laughs> it's a tiny little box on my screen. It's the ram in the thicket. i I all I saw was, was that I it om- looked like a fork. I don't know. Anna wrote a paper on Luristan bronzes from Iran once. That's... We were in that class together. <laughs> I didn't I don't remember doing particularly well on that paper. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting, so,
1: though. It was no super interesting. Um, so, Hem Professor Roof says the Royal Cemetery is one of the most spectacular archaeological finds to date. Full stop. <laughs> um, That's and- your opinion, sir. <laughs> The Royal Cemetery is one of the most spectacular archaeological finds to date. In most of the graves, the body has been laid on its side, wrapped in a mat or enclosed in a coffin at the bottom of a vertical shaft. Alongside each body were personal possessions, jewelry, a dagger, and perhaps a cylinder seal. The cylinder seals are the ones that have the... um, They'll have... um, Figural images or like writing and you roll them across the outside Mm -hmm. of uh, the envelope that you have, uh, the clay that you have um, kind of working as an envelope around your um, your cuneiform tablet and you roll it across and it works as like a signature, but also something that's tamper evident. Mm -hmm. And they're usually personal. The grave also contained pottery, stone, or metal vessels, which might have held food and drink, as well as weapons and makeup paints and cockle shells, together (laughs) with the necessary tools for applying them. Similar graves have been found at Abu Salavik, Kish, and Khafaja, which are just other places in southern Mesopotamia. Okay. Um, However, 17 graves were unusual, both in their construction and in the wealth of goods that they held. Some were of stone or mud brick, some had several chambers, and some had vaults. Most of these graves had been robbed Vault. in ancient times. To- <laughs> uh, had been robbed in ancient times, but even so, even so, what remained was extraordinary, and particularly so in those in those tombs that were found intact. In some of the royal tombs, this is capital R, capital T. Mm-hmm. The principal occupant had evidently been accompanied to the netherworld by dozens of attendants who had been slaughtered during the funeral rites. Yeah, we'll get to that. One tomb was placed almost exactly above another.
0: So probably someone was buried on top of somebody else, probably on purpose, yeah.
1: or maybe not. No. Or maybe they just like happened to dig in the same place. Like it's, so oh, okay. I know, I just would have
0: it. thought it's yeah. a statement, but hey,
1: um, no, I think one of them like kind of cut into it, Oh, but if, I don't, I don't know okay. he was, but the first modern archaeologist mm-hmm. the lower one which Woolley called the king's grave had a sloping passageway leading down at the foot of the ramp were the skeletons of six soldiers wearing copper helmets and armed with copper spears. farther along were the remains of two four-wheeled wagons each pulled by three oxen the reins had been made out of lapis lazuli beads and passed through silver rings decorated with statues of oxen
0: <laughs> exhibit I heard you like put my oxen. My so I put some oxen on your oxen.
1: Beyond the wagons, there were more than 50 male and female skeletons. The remains of two liars were found next to a group of women. A
0: crowded tomb.
1: Yeah. Um, and also um these were these were determined to be male and female skeletons mm-hmm. like during the initial excavations. Mm-hmm. So um so, question mark. So They may not have been sexed on biological
0: characteristics, but rather on material goods
1: who had daggers and who had pretty pink bows bows. in their hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, One of the lyres was decorated with a golden lapis lazuli bull's head and a shell inlay showing animals playing musical instruments, like an early illustration to one of Aesop's fables, (laughs) (sighs) which is a really. irresponsible thing to put in this book because it has Esau nothing is, to do with
0: aesop's famous yeah, he's, he's greek
1: <laughs> the tomb chamber had been built of stone with brick vaulting there were there the remains of several bodies were found and copper and silver models of boats of the same type as those used by the marsh arabs of southern iraq today marsh arabs um yeah so these are um it's a population that lived in the um in the marshy, like, al Arab area that were uh, the target of a genocide by Saddam Hussein. Yeah, I knew This book it... was published in 1990. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yes. Okay. Most of the contents of the tomb chamber, however, had been removed by robbers who had entered through a hole in the roof from a second royal tomb directly above. Da, da, this had a da, similar da, da, layout da, da, to that da, of the king's da, grave, da, 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 da. but the tomb chamber and outer pit had not been looted. Five bodies lay on the ramp before a wooden sledge ornamented with gold and silver lions and bulls heads with mosaics of lapis lazuli and shell. Attached to the sledge were two oxen whose reins passed through a silver ring decorated with finely modeled Electrum donkey. Electrum donkey is my <laughs> new discotheque <laughs> concept pop up. Um, Near the sledge were a gaming board and vessels made of gold, silver, copper, obsidian, lapis lazuli, alabaster, and marble. Damn. In the middle of these objects was a large wooden box decorated with mosaic and had been placed over the hole in the ceiling of the chamber of the king's grave. Oh, it was intentional. Okay. I was thinking of a different one. There are a lot of
0: burials. Yeah, involved. he uncovered like a, <laughs> more than yeah. 300 yeah. every single season or phase. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah so so there was a there was a um, escape hatch into the chamber of the king's grave probably the builders of the labor, later tomb had found the earlier tomb chamber and looted it <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> uh. um,
1: in the tomb chamber of the later tomb the body of a woman lay on a wooden bier, together with her two servants Near the woman's right shoulder, a lapis lazuli cylinder seal showing a banquet scene bore the inscription, Puabi, Queen. Okay. I mean, it's really um, nice when it just, it's a label. It's like her email signature. Yeah. Um, Puabi had been buried dressed in all her finery, including a gold headdress. A second headdress found near the body consisted of a backing strip onto which had been sewn thousands of tiny lapis lazuli beads. And on top of these were fixed small gold figures of stags, gazelles,
0: Bulls and goats separated by plant motifs. This actually goes from daytime to nighttime. Yes. (laughs) This is is my nighttime headdress. (laughs)
1: Um, Another tomb chamber had been robbed, but the outer area, called by Woolly the Great Death Pit, was preserved And in in a space measuring less than 9 by 8 meters. No fewer than 74 willing victims had been sacrificed. Six soldiers were stationed near the ramp. Four female physicians. No female musicians were found. <laughs> I was going to say wow. You need some doctors. Four female musicians were found near their lyres, of which one instrument had a gold-bearded bull's head, and another a silver cow's head, and a third a silver stag's head. A further 64 women lay in orderly rows. About their necks they had chokers of lapis lazuli and gold, as well as other jewelry, and they wore large crescent-shaped gold earrings and simplified version of Puabi's headdress. Twenty-eight of the women had gold hair ribbons, and the rest silver. One unfortunate woman still had her hair ribbon rolled up. Evidently, she had not had time to put on a ribbon, having arrived late at her
0: own funeral. That's an interpretation. Shall we talk about some of the things that were, yeah, in that? That death I bit? thought
1: was a that was a fun.
0: It was a cool visual,
1: fun intro. Yeah, before I we get things th- straight from the ram in the thicket's mouth meh so yeah so let's talk about some of the stuff that was in those things the non-human
0: stuff mm-hmm. well we're going to talk about the human stuff too but first things first um so the first thing we're going to talk about is called the standard of Ur, and i feel very validated now because i didn't you know i as listeners may have gleaned i have an incomplete memory of the materials from Ur, and i always thought it was dumb when it was called a standard because it's a box and and a standard is something that you lift over your head in battle and it just seemed dumb that it would be a big box see
1: i had no idea what a standard was oh. and so
0: i was like cool oh yeah no it, it so you got to go in <laughs> no and nothing <laughs> well there was my mistake dang Okay, well, the standard of Ur is a small trapezoidal box, it's 8.5 inches high by 19.5 inches long, um, whose two sides and end panels are covered with figurative and geometric mosaics made of pieces of shell, lapis lazuli, and red limestone set into bitumen. It was found near a soldier whom Willie thought had carried it on a long pole as the royal emblem of a king. Um, It's actually more likely to have been the sound box for a musical instrument. That makes so much more sense to me. Um, But when Wooly found it, he gave it the name The Standard. um, And that is still used. It's currently, it resides at the British Museum. And you've seen it with your face, huh? Yeah.
1: Well, I saw it specifically with my eyes. Yeah. Um, And it's a straight up box. Yeah, it's a box. Pretty dumb that he thought it was carried as the royal emblem of a king. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at it,
0: you wouldn't it's be able a box to s- with a
1: it's a box with a comic strip on it.
0: Yeah, I mean and you also like a beautiful one that's like very the 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 craftsmanship done. is amazing, yeah. but yeah, like the idea that you would be able to see it from yards and yards away in battle and be like, "Ah yes." is it's very silly. Anyway, the the mosaics on the standard, not a standard, depict life in early Mesopotamia. You call it the box if you want. <laughs> I'm over it. The two sides are dubbed the war side and the peace side, um, and they tell a story that you read from bottom to top. So they're in a series of rows or registers, and and you kind of make your way up and it tells the story. So the top register on each side depicts a king, and we know that because he's larger in scale than the other figures. The standard shows- Big man. Big man. Lugal. Lugal. The standard shows the two most important roles of an early Mesopotamian ruler the warrior who protected the people and secured access to water and natural resources and the leader who served as an intermediary between the people and the gods. So let's talk about the war side first. Um, It's one of the earliest known representations of a Sumerian army engaged in what is believed to be a border skirmish and also its aftermath because remember this is a, a story. So there's some, there's a time, a narrative element. The war panel shows the King in the middle of the top register standing taller than any other figure, Lugal, with his head projecting out of the frame to emphasize his supreme status. Also so big! See, I we don't We should fix... add in this panel. We should ask our
1: um, oh, King our Paul. Patron.
0: Yeah, King Paul. King Paul, do you does your head stick out of stuff? It's a device also used on on the peace panel. The king stands in front of his bodyguard and a four wheeled chariot, which uh, the chariot's drawn by a team of some sort of equids. And I I just thought that was funny but but horses didn't get there until uh, the second millennium BCE so we don't know if they were horses for sure they could be um, also domestic asses donkeys or onagers That's how you say it Onagers yeah onagers I w- I always thought it was onager but that
1: might be a book huh that's onogen okay never mind. <laughs>
0: The king faces a row of prisoners, all of whom are portrayed as naked, bound and injured with large bleeding gashes on their chests and thighs, um, which I read was sort of a, a standard, um, divide, like a, a motif of depicting like defeated captives. They like you got you get one big gash here, you get one here, like you, you hurt here and you hurt here. And then it's followed by a depiction of enemies being captured and led away. The soldiers are shown wearing leather cloaks and helmets and actual examples of that sort of helmet that is depicted in the mosaic were found in the same tomb. So that's helpful. The nudity of the captive and dead enemies was probably not meant to depict literally how they appeared in real life, <laughs> okay, but was more likely to have been symbolic and associated with a Mesopotamian belief that linked death with nakedness. And this is some Zana Bahrani stuff. And like, I love
1: her work. <laughs> Because it is so heavy, it's just like, oh man, oh boy. Well, Zainab Bahani, but yeah, there's a visual metaphor. Yeah, because because you know humans wear clothes, right? Dead and so dead things are no and, longer human, or or things that are are subjugated, mm. mm-hmm.
0: or like rendered mm, in human. I see. I see. I see. Oh, yeah. that is heavy. Okay. Well, um, it gets heavier. Oh, boy. The peace side portrays a banquet scene. The king, again, appears in the upper register, taller than it, again, sitting on a carved stool on the left-hand side. He's faced by six other seated participants, each holding a cup raised in his right hand. They are attended by various other figures, including a long-haired individual, possibly a singer, who accompanies a lyarist, which is not a professional teller of tall tales, it's someone playing a lyre, which is a kind of harp. In the middle register, bald-headed figures wearing skirts with fringes parade animals, fish, and other goods, perhaps bringing them to the feast. The bottom register shows a series of figures dressed and coiffed in a different way from those above, carrying produce in shoulder bags or backpacks, or leading equids by ropes attached to nose rings. So this is uh, basically... Uh, it's a wooden box with metal inlay and um, inlay of lapis lazuli and stone. And it's just very, it's really exquisite.
1: The harps that were found in the Royal Tombs of Ore um, were were wooden, made of wood. Um, and so Woolley took casts of them, of the deteriorated wood, before he excavated it out because that wood it wasn't it was holding gone. shape anymore.
0: It was just like Yeah, it splinters. was not going to...
1: Yeah. Um, and so the original versions, like the original uh, wood and string instruments found at ore, were richly decorated. or just like the box, the standard of ore, they were overlaid with gold, silver, copper, lapis lazuli, mother of pearl, um, or other <laughs> non-wood materials um, that didn't deteriorate. Right. So you sort of had the all the stuff that was on the wood with no wood under it. And so when the ceilings of the ancient tombs fell in, some of the instruments collapsed together so badly that it was difficult to sort out which pieces went with which. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so um, the the archaeologists at um, the British Museum and the Penn Museum... Um, and the researchers thereafter spent years and years and years and years and years <laughs> trying to sort it out. Um, and they think they have correctly separated the different and distinct musical instruments and improved their assessments of the original sizes. They have a right. better sense of yeah. what they actually look like instead of and just so like like a have jumble conc- of parts. Yeah. They, and so now they have concrete evidence that um, can be used to replicate the, those very unique lyres and harps. Um, and so part of what informed that is that there's about um, – there's a ton of information about what music was like. Remember that – I love
0: this so much. My little music nerd heart is going pitter-pat. Do you, do you remember that that
1: song I played for you? <laughs> that song that we shared on? I, I do. God. So uh, it, uh, it's, it's not uh, like that. It doesn't sound like that. Um, Len
0: so, Urd Cohen. Yep. Yep. Um,
1: yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so – we have ample evidence of of music and its uses. Um, from you know, we got like half a million cuneiform tablets.
0: That's not nothing. So
1: they, <laughs> yep. And so they, that all of them are receipts for beer, um, <laughs> and they tell us all about the uses of music in um, in Sumer and the city states, in, all over Babylonia, Syria, and up all around, everywhere else, um, everywhere that had cuneiform tablets talking about stuff. Music came up. I'm guessing. <laughs> um, so we also have pictorial representations of musical instruments, singers, and religious and sort of more magical rituals. We got dancers and acrobats and sports, um, <laughs> and so all of these kind of speak to the importance of music in ancient societies. Um, and then we've got these these um, stringed instruments. Thank you. Instruments is the word I was looking for. Um, at at or. and so we've got a, another dimension, and so um, there are eleven in total. Mm-hmm. They think from I mean, or Best guess. I, they're pretty pretty confident. Mni eleven. <laughs> um, oh boy. And so deep. Cuts. If it weren't for if it weren't for the two harps and the nine lyres, we wouldn't have any actual stringed instruments from. This corner of the world in this time so cool which is pretty incredible yeah um and so the the or graves also yielded a pair of silver wind instruments mm. um and a small number of other types of instruments i think like I'd little like think.
0: little um like little percussion things and oh i was like and stuff <laughs> Yes. Um, and one big old bass guitar Yeah, I think like sort of like castanet guys. Yeah, Um, and then there are a few other prehistoric
1: Mesopotamian sites that give us fragments of bone wind instruments. But now that we have a sense of what was going on, re these harps, I want to talk about music. All Anna, okay,
0: good. (laughs) So, among the many cuneiform tablets that have been studied. Many, 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 many. Um, there's a small number of texts relating to the tuning and playing of ancient instruments. So they came with they came with practice books. Um, so, gosh, those sound boring. Yeah, I mean they're boring enough in a language I do understand. Um, so so far, cuneiformists have identified ten Mesopotamian tablets that contain technical information about ancient musical scales. It's sort of comforting to know <laughs> they're just lists that like it, it is just string. Lists
1: second string
0: third string <laughs> no it's it's about fourth how the string broken work. like there are there okay. are numbers of different scales even today in western and eastern musical traditions um but also it's sort of comforting to know that music students even 5000 or so years ago had to practice their scales I'm just kind of like oh everybody hates it so we now know that by the old babylonian period in ancient iraq so around 1800 BCE or About 850 years after the period of the Royal Cemetery Cemetery of Ur, there existed standardized tuning procedures consisting of seven different and interrelated scales. So that's like... How many do we have? I think seven. Because there's Mixolydian, Aeolian... No, those are modes. Major, minor... What? I took music theory one time. What is
1: any of this?
0: There are so in music. There, I are... I took music appreciation, and all I learned was that Franz Liszt was super hot. He was. Ladies loved him, then he, and then he loved God more. He did. That's a different story. Um, although Sumerians, they loved a list. Oh my god! <laughs> Do I have to leave? Bye. <laughs> 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 so, um, yes, I think there are still in, in Western music, there are still seven scales. And the, it, the really cool thing is that the seven uh, Mesopotamian scales can be equated with the seven ancient Greek scales um, that date to around 1400 years later. The one, And even one of these scales um, that is in common between Babylonian and, and Greek music is common to ours. It's the, the modern major scale. So the one that goes do, re, mi. Da, 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 da. That's a major scale. And what are
1: these seven? What are these six other ones? You got
0: like major, minor what? scale. You can have the pentatonic scale.
1: What? It's different isn't sequences a, of Isn't that a acapella group?
0: It's called pentatonics because there are five of them, but the pentatonic scale is is what the blues I are based it was on. It's a religious thing. No, not like Pentateuch. No. <sighs> That's different, bud. Okay. The, the point is that there are – so a scale is going from – so the, the notes are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh-huh. right? So if okay. I were to go from A to A, so a lower A to a higher A, that is an octave. If I were to play all the notes between A and A, I would be playing a scale, right? That's a scale. Yeah. There are also accidentals, which is the sharps and flats. So A sharp – C sharp, when you go, it's th- so it's patterns of whole and half steps getting to between A and A, right? So going do, re, mi is using whole steps. When you do a minor scale, you do different patterns of whole and half. And so different scales are different patterns of whole and half steps between the lower and the higher note of the octave. So there are seven of these patterns in ancient Mesopotamian music. So, seven different iterations of notes getting you from one end to the other of an octave. Cuneiformists have been working with musicologists, so that's probably a very small partnership, uh, but they've they've found terms on Akkadian tablets, lists designating the names of the musical <laughs> strings the names of the instruments and their parts i taught you yeah. first string yep. second string yep. <laughs> uh fingering <laughs> techniques the names of musical intervals so fifths and fourths and thirds and so, so like when you when you hit a chord you're doing you're playing different intervals right depending yes. on yeah so you put those intervals together they sound in different ways so talking about intervals um and the names of the seven scales, which is why we know about those. The instruments from Ur have a large enough number of strings, because several of them have 11, one has 13, um, for tuning intervals of fourths and fifths and to accommodate an octave. So we sort of know what the um, what the range of these uh, instruments would have been. Um, so we we know that the octave was a thing in in Mesopotamian music, because when they talk about the numbered strings, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then goes back to one. So there's an understanding that the first note is the core on which the scale is built. And so once you reach the octave, you're not counting up more, you're going back to one because it's the same note again. Right. Um, And so, so Eight is one, and nine is two. So it's the same note. It's recognized that it's the same note, just a higher octave. Early Mesopotamian representations of lyres show them with string numbers ranging from three to twelve. So obviously the ones with three strings, no octaves there. And so people have been trying to recreate um, playable reconstructions of the Ur instruments so that they could hear what they would have sounded like. Um, Research on the original wood fragments identified them as boxwood. Standard wood? Standard wood, yeah. Um, And so people have used... So boxwood is a conifer and people have used other coniferous woods and apparently they produce very lovely, rich sounds. The largest lyre, having the longest strings, so meaning it's in a deeper register, sounds a little bit like a a bass viol or viol. So it's like a... possibly lower than a cello. The medium-sized silver lyre has a sound reminiscent of a cello. Puabi's harp, uh, which I believe is the one with the bowl sounds rather like a small guitar. There are three playable replicas that were made in Berkeley at the University of California by emeritus professor Robert Brown. None of the small lyres from or have been reconstructed, as far as we know, but in all likelihood... <laughs> someone in some basement somewhere, maybe, is like oh, woodcrafting probably. a beautiful thing. Um, based on the relative string lengths, though, we can imagine that they would have sounded similar to Puabi's harp, so kind of in the same... Uh, aud- aud- audio. <laughs> oh man, audible. I was like, seeing, but for ears <laughs> in the same register as a guitar. Ooh. So um, speaking of these reproductions, there was one that I saw a brief news blurb on the lyre of or being reproduced in 2005 by a team of Liverpool engineers. And the focus of the article wasn't so much on the reconstruction of the harp or like what it sounded like, but how stoked they were that they... <laughs> were able to engrave things on the harp with lasers
1: so yeah
0: we can link to We're like
1: yeah there's like it's like old and stuff but these lasers
0: we did such a good job on these shells with our lasers um so we're gonna link to that article in the show notes (laughs) it's not as relevant here but and also the 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 liar huh oh yeah and also yeah so um I will read this part. So Andy Lowings is a one of the coordinators of this Liverpool Laser Harp project, um, and he's also a harp enthusiast, as, as he is designated. Not a laser enthusiast. No, no, he's that's he's, everyone else on this he's project. Much more into he's in it for the harps, um, but he is a musician and a harpist, and he uh, we've got a clip. You could say his harps in the right place. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, there we have a video of him accompanying a musician named Steph Connor, who learned um, ancient Sumerian and used it to recreate some uh, recreate uh, to create some um, some songs. So that we have a clip of him accompanying her on the harp, and it's interesting. We'll let you listen to it, listeners, and form your own opinions. Um, those of you watching this video can see what Amber's opinion is on her face. But, um, so it's like, it's just her singing. It's It's like original content. Yeah. The lyre that was created by the Liverpool team has also been played by musicians from around the globe at several high profile events, including the Live Aid Eden Project and the Edinburgh International Harp Festival. (laughs) You made it, kid. I'm going to tell you about Queen Puabi and some other dudes. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: There are three royals buried in the royal cemetery there. Yeah, like you. Um, do. whose names we know, and those names are Puabi, Muskalam Dug, and Akalam Dug. We know their names, um, because the name is either like on the back of the helmet, like <laughs> his mom put it there. Or something. <laughs> I was just
0: gonna say um, did his mom little
1: stuff. So it doesn't get like mixed up in the laundry. Oh. Um, and then also we know their names from from the cylinder seals. So the cylinder seals tell us a lot about. They can tell us. We've talked about this before. We specifically talked about this in our Ancient Aliens episode, where um, you can you can gain some insight by what uh, flora and fauna is featured, but also by what's written around individuals. You can see people like partying. Um, you can see people. Um, engaged in conversation with gods and things. Um, but the cylinder seals, Puabi's cylinder seal and some of the other items that were found at the Royal Tombs of War, um, are in the corpus of evidence, um, used by Zechariah Sitchin to promote his ancient aliens hypothesis. Yeah, which so remember more on that, listen to our, episode. which remember, yeah, you can listen to our episode on Patreon, but, um, Spoiler alert: Zechariah Sitchin did not learn how to read Sumerian. Nope. As for the get-up that Queen Puabi was wearing, remember she had her like, she got her, her fancy dress on. She had her day look and her night look. Mm-hmm. So this is pulled from um, Art of the Ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. Which is, this is the the resources for educators. Yeah, this is the bezel at yeah. mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Um. Ahem. Uh, Queen Puabi's regalia. The materials used in art of the ancient Near East were deliberately chosen with features such as color and hardness as deciding factors. Gold and silver were considered to have specific magical and apotropaic properties, meaning um, they can ward off evil. Mm-hmm. Um as did the lapis lazuli and carnelian stones that they were most frequently combined with to create objects and ornaments. Precious metals were referenced in mythological literature to convey concepts and attributes associated with deities, primarily because their color, shine, and brilliance were deemed fitting for gods and goddesses. So shiny. Mm -hmm. Queen Poabi was buried in a gold headdress decorated with lapis lazuli and carnelian.
0: It's super beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. We'll put we'll um, put pictures on our social media.
1: Yeah. And so there's rows of overlapping leaves made of sheet gold with gold ribbon loops at the sides and a flower or kind of a star diadem on the top. That's kind of silly looking, but it like comes up and it's like... I'm
0: sure it looked beautiful.
1: Oh. Yeah. No, I'm sure it was very striking. Um, but it was... Do that all the time. <laughs> um, and so not only was she like she was dolled up so you know how in ariana grande's new single seven rings she's like i see it i want it i like i like it i get it like right this is what this is like seven rings she saw it she liked it she she wanted it it was hers. yeah she, she got it yeah yeah so yeah uh, probably got really more, like, more like ariana
0: grande uh, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm.
1: yeah she has a, a tattoo in cuneiform that says like pig barbecue <laughs> <piglet> barbecue. <laughs> on her palm um, so the amount of grave goods <laughs> the amount of grave goods found in Puabi's tomb was staggering an abundance of silver lapis lazuli and golden rings
0: and bracelets more than seven she had ten, 10 plus seven she had a ring on every finger when she was buried, ten rings. Take that, Ariana. <laughs> a magnificent. Okay, we get it. Uh, so she had her headdress with the
1: with the leaves. Yep. Um, a superb lyre, um, complete with the also Ariana Grande. Uh, complete with the golden and lapis lazuli encrusted. <laughs> I love her. Um, the golden and lapis lazuli encrusted bearded bull's head. It's like super gorgeous. Also, great golden tableware um gold carnelian and cylindrical beads for extravagant necklaces and belts um so we they wouldn't have been necklaces they would have been piles of beads at this point right this something gone. that people that people don't always realize especially when you go and look at it at a museum and you don't have context like that's what they're assuming it would have looked they're like taking their or it might have shot looked it's like a um, It's like when you get a freezer meal and it's in like a bowl on the cover and it's like all gorgeous and steaming. It's like serving suggestion. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like that. Uh, This is a serving suggestion. Um, And so it would have been necklaces or belts or bracelets or like dangly earrings. Yeah, Maybe she just had piles of beads. She could have been a crafter. I don't know. And a chariot adorned with lionesses heads in silver. Super gorgeous. Um, When... When Puabi was found, on her fingers were tin rings. And she said, you like my hair? Gee, thanks. Just bought it.
0: (laughs) Bring it to the pop culture. Okay. Um, (laughs) So there's another cool thing about uh, Puabi's jewelry, besides how totes gorgeous it is, which is that (laughs) um, it may be a clue to where she was from. So the carnelian beads in particular um, are in two types. So that the shape of the beads and the way that they're carved are of two particular types linked to India or the Indus Valley. So it's possible that Puabi was from around there and she had sort of brought the jewelry with her in her trousseau. But um, it also might be possible that this was evidence of increased trade between Ur and the Indus region, which could also be a factor, like if, if Puabi was from there. and Yeah,
1: because she probably, like, didn't meet a, a nice boy from Ur, like
0: when she was doing a semester abroad. Right. Like, no, she probably she, was – it was an alliance marriage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So she was part of the trade. She
0: came with Ur, her Or the
1: stuff she was wearing – Was part of trade. Right. I just had to point out that nobody could fall in love and be happily ever after.
0: Not that we know of. Come on, sunshine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the great death pit, sunshine. Yeah, let's get get on to like, all right, well, going to stay on brand. Let's talk about the great death pit. Um, Remember when I said we gave our boy Wooly credit for being a modern archaeologist and using his methodical excavation and detailed notes to reconstruct what life was like back in ancient Mesopotamia and made him a a real trailblazer for modern archaeology. Well, I'm going to read from um, his book, The Royal Cemetery, Mm. or Excavations Volume Mm 2, and you'll see that maybe it's less reconstruction and more wild conjecture. Quote. We must imagine... The burial in the chamber to be complete and the door sealed. There remains the open pit with its mat-lined walls and mat-colored floor. Wouldn't that be great if everybody's name was Matt? (laughs) (laughs) Empty and unfurnished. Now down the sloping passage comes a procession of people. The members of the court, soldiers, men, servants, and women the latter all in their finery of brightly colored garments and headdresses of lapis lazuli and silver and gold and with them musicians bearing harps or lyre, cymbals and sistra. They take up their positions in the farther part of the pit and then there are driven or backed down the slope the chariots drawn by oxen or by asses, the drivers in the cars, the grooms holding the heads of the draft animals and these two are marshaled into the pit. Each man and woman brought a little cup of clay or stone or metal, the only equipment required for the rite that was to follow. Some kind of service there must have been at the bottom of the shaft. At least it is evident that the musicians played up to the last and that each drank from the cup. Either they brought the potion with them or they found it prepared for them on the spot. In PG-1237, there was in the middle of the pit a great copper pot into which they could have dipped and they composed themselves for death. Then someone came down and killed all the animals and perhaps arranged the drugged bodies. And when that was done, earth was flung from above on them, and the filling
0: in of the grave shaft was begun. I mean, Say what you will about his his, uh, failure to be accurate. He tells a great story. Yeah, that's a great story.
1: That's really awesome. Um, That's super not what happened, though. Yes, would you Um, like to know what happened? (laughs) Even before they found a random skeleton in the basement of the Penn Museum, um, they did have a sense of, like, what was going on. Uh Mostly, like, they didn't have cups everywhere. And so some science shows that maybe... um, they weren't sipping the flavor aid.
0: Uh -uh. It's science o'clock. Okay, on brand for the dirt, but we start with some serendipitous coincidence. In the summer of 2014, Penn Museum scholars working on the Oura Digitization Project, researching and digitizing excavation records from Woolley's expedition, made a spectacular discovery in the museum basement. It's not a discovery so much as like, oh, that's where that is. Um it yeah. was So they're looking they're like scanning documents. <laughs> they found a box <laughs> and it has some bones. It was a sixty five hundred year old skeleton from the site of Ur, preserved at the museum for eighty-five years, but with all trace of its identifying documentation gone, which is ironic the because it was, was with were looking all the for. documents. <laughs> physical anthropology curator and keeper Janet Monge knew that knew that a second box without documentation was nearby and based on the evidence from the project in all likelihood it was a second ancient skeleton from the site prior to opening the second box dr Monge was hoping opening oh boy was hoping to x-ray it in the museum's new x-ray room but the <laughs> size and bulk of the box Which made they that got problematic. just in case they find <laughs> For all your mystery boxes. So that project was put on hold because it was too big for the x-ray. Finally, Dr. Manj, with the help of graduate student and collections assistant Paul Mitchell, used a crowbar (laughs) to open the box and confirm that it was, indeed, the second and final skeleton from Ur that had lost its passport when it was moved into storage. Penn made a class out of this, (laughs) which is amazing. um, So as an introduction to the field of bioarchaeology. And so the idea is, what do you do when you find a new skeleton? Um, and so they, they sort of lay out the, the long-term research project and carry it out. So first, uh, this is a quote from Janet Monge, is the determination of the archaeological context from archival records of the excavation, which is what the digitization project was kind of already doing from this framework the students can propose a pr- appropriate hypotheses to test with the skeleton using technical techniques of skeletal analysis including x-ray and ct scan imaging and sampling strategies for isotopic diet research to name just a few so um i then found an article <laughs> titled this is the this is the thing that i knew about
1: because yeah. i was i was taking classes in that department at mm. the time that this was happening and everyone's like did you hear what Janet did? <laughs>
0: and then a few years later, they were like, did you hear what Janet did? And it was like, good grief. <laughs> so tell me. Oh, tell the article is called, quote, scanning the Deadheads. Leonard Woolley did save a few skeletons from his excavations. Like, I don't know what he was doing with all those bodies. Just like, like,
1: like in addition to the, the two random ones that they found.
0: Yeah. Like there were 400 something burials, right?
1: No, but like, but like,
0: did he save other ones too? Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. Well. Okay. So, because remember, they didn't know about this one, right? Um, well, it's not saving so much as what what this article called consolidating the crushed skulls of soldiers from one of the pits and some females from another pit and using wax to lift them with their helmets and jewelry intact, which is a cool idea. It's a good idea, but yeah. uh, so um, very modern, indeed. So, um, forensic examination of these two skulls—the the male soldier and the female—they underwent forensic examination to determine if there was cause of death evidence um, on their well, skeletons. Okay, cause of death, not just death. Like they're clearly sure. dead. This one. <laughs> so they used um, CT scans, which CT stands for computed tomography, and it's basically That's what my brother does. Yeah, it's basically uh, repeated slices, photographic slices of of an object. Um, And it was done at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And it shows that both of these skulls have perimortem fractures. So that means a fracture occurring around the time of death. And these fractures include circular holes representing blunt force trauma caused by a blow to the back of the head, which was the probable cause of death. So... Rather than dying willingly by drinking some, quote, deadly or soporific drug, as Woolley suggested, the two attendants in the Penn Museum collection were violently killed, which is not to say that they weren't willing. Like, we don't really know the the context. Well, and, and willing
1: also might not have come into the equation.
0: Right. In any case, they were killed with a heavy pointed instrument. The CT scans also revealed that the body of the female had been exposed to heat before burial and treated with mercury sulfide. This would have been sort of a uh, an not a non-embalming fluid way of of treating the body to delay decomposition, suggesting that the attendants' bodies might have remained unburied after they died, probably for lengthy funerary ceremonies. So it wasn't so much that they died and then immediately thereafter they were arranged and dirt thrown over them. They, there may have been lengthy lengthy uh, rituals involved, and so here is. Um, A segment from the article written up by uh, Janet Monge, which was in the journal Antiquity. The blunt force trauma was probably inflicted using an instrument with a small pointed striking end and sufficient weight to have penetrated the skull. Um, thrusting weapons such as daggers, swords, spears, or lances could not have been effective at close range and pear-shaped stone maces, such as those recovered from other contemporary archaeological contexts, such as kafaja in the Diyala region of Iraq, would have crushed rather than penetrated the skull. The weapon would more likely have been something similar to a copper, quote, battle axe with a long spike on one end found in a slightly later grave in the royal cemetery. Um, So it describes, the article goes on to describe this particular battle axe, and it also resembles weapons depicted on Akkadian cylinder seals, and um, some of those recovered from contemporary sites in Syria and Iran. So if this indeed was the instrument used to inflict these wounds, in all likelihood, as shown in the cylinder seal impressions, the axe would have been hafted to take advantage it wasn't just that someone with their hand on the on the axe part just going chunk they would have been hafted to take advantage of the leverage it would provide when the fatal blow was delivered while a pickaxe is the most likely candidate okay pickaxe it's like an axe blade with a spike on the other side it is difficult to determine with like precision like a fireman's axe yeah exactly It is difficult to determine with precision the types and varieties of weapons used to produce either blunt or sharp force trauma on archaeological specimens because, you know, they they were buried. So their skulls were crushed. So they had to reconstruct the skull before they could analyze it. And then, you know, it's an imperfect uh, picture of what happened.
1: Yeah. And so I'm going to give you one last little quote from our boy Rofe. Not everyone agrees with Woolley that his so-called royal tombs were the graves of the rulers of Or and his close family. Some think that they contain the ritually slaughtered victims of some religious ceremony. The custom of royal burial with sacrificial victims is attested in several parts of the world, for example, in early dynastic Egypt and later in the Sudan, in Shang, China and in melanesia in the 13th century ad oh. but in mesopotamia there is little evidence for it apart from the royal cemetery so this is weird
0: yeah it's out of out of uh, the ordinary for the area huh that yeah it's weird so
1: this is yeah so and nobody a, understands it nobody understands it
0: we don't i know Woolley definitely didn't
1: <laughs> he tried And so it's, this is a, there are so many other like things about um, the Royal Tombs of War um, that are so fascinating. There's absolutely gorgeous art, like uh, not even art, like visual culture. So things that were useful, but are pretty to us. Yeah. So like really, really gorgeous stuff. And there's just so, so much, like so many directions you can go in terms of like, Trying to Being understand it. Like, what was of it? going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, like, is like, so this whole idea of if Puabi is from the Indus Valley, is Harappa, this like some maybe? weird thing that she brought? Like, oh, is interesting. It, So, is it like, you know, is that her idea? Yeah. So, what was going on? What's happening? And really, like, this might not have too much connection to concepts of kingship in this. In, mm this space. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like a it's a cool mystery. It's a, a weird thing. That's super metal. And,
0: <laughs> um, I totally recommend that our listeners look into it. Yeah. Check out our, our reading list in our show notes and there'll be lots and lots of, um, uh, material there for you to jump off from if you're interested. Yeah thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in your ears soon, and you can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. Yep, and you can follow us over on Facebook at the Dirt Podcast,
1: on Twitter we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram we're at the Dirt Pod. Yep, and you can and s- so you can see you can see some of the the stuff from Or there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And you can see all of those social media accounts together at thedirtpod.com. And if you have questions or thoughts or you want to know more about something we've talked about on the podcast, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.